Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I am a fellow with the Forum. And today, by popular request, I am speaking to Professor Victor Minaldo about cancel culture. Victor, what is cancel culture? I would say it's the attempt to silence things we don't like and to ostracize, uh, punish, and um, sideline people and things we don't like uh, as well. So not only, I suppose, the ideas, but the people behind them. Mm-hmm. And it could involve uh, individuals, groups, um, organizations, ideologies, political parties, things like that. Right. And... Do you feel like the um, phenomenon that is, you know, currently experienced in the U.S. is distinct from uh, earlier periods, or is that not the case? It's hard to say. It could be that we're aware of it much more because everything is uh, creates an electronic footprint and a digital timestamp, so you're aware of this stuff much more. I mean, it right. lives and breathes on social networks, but. There's some evidence that suggests that the uh, frequency, intensity, velocity have all uh, increased. Okay, so um, people getting in in each other's face because of things that uh, they don't like about each other, that sounds a lot like politics. I don't really understand why this is a new phenomenon that needs a special name. What exactly do you feel like is distinctive about it? Well, let's talk about actions instead of words first. Let's talk right. about some actions in the political sphere where different groups try to disenfranchise, let's say, voices they don't want to hear or political adversaries. So mm-hmm. think, for example, of the bill HB 2720 in Arizona. What it's trying to do is empower the state legislature to override the electoral college allocation of um, electors, let's say, in the state elections during presidential races. And, And it's trying to say a state legislature can revoke the secretary of state certification, let's say, of the winner, right? Mm-hmm. Or of whatever decision making, um, rule they have for allocating electoral college votes, right? Usually it's the winner in that state, right? So they're trying to have this be overridden by the state legislature, the state legislature in Arizona, typically controlled by Republicans. So that's about a political party trying to cancel another or try to cancel democracy or the rules of the road, the way they've been construed, right? Which Mm -hmm. is a way of breaching liberal democracy or the rule of law, right? try to exclude the opposing side from office by any means necessary or by pressing a procedural advantage. Now think of the Democrats, at least at the federal level, very outspoken Democrats on the left have said they wanna pack the court by adding four justices. They want to abolish the filibuster, which means that they would need just a majority in the uh, Senate 
to pass their bills, and they want to add states to the union that are demographically um, forecast to probably vote Democrat and therefore cement their advantage in the Electoral College and the Senate. Okay, fair. That to me is a part of cancel culture and that these things were unheard of, let's say eight years ago, four years ago. This uh, idea that you would press every advantage and try to exclude other parties all right, so all of these are examples in a sense, and so is the suppression of free speech or um, let's say free inquiry or freedom of conscience. All these things are ways of creating political or cultural advantages that are about marginalizing your adversaries or defeating them. And we've talked about this, Nick, on other podcasts, but to me, it's just part and parcel of a trend towards liberalism, a trend towards relaxing the rule of law, not having a distinction between public and private life, getting rid of the presumption of innocence or due process, and not using uh, debate, critical reasoning, facts and evidence to promote accountability but trying to impose your will, trying to impose one point of view, and trying to terrorize people you disagree with. It can be, let's say, to take, for sake of arguments, Republicans and Democrats, it could be Republicans against Republicans. So think about Liz Cheney, who was the leader, third in command, at least in the Republican Party in the House, who has now been, in a sense, defrocked by her party because she was speaking about the truth of what happened in, during the elections. Uh, that Trump did not win and there was no fraud. Um, it could be Republicans against Democrats, as I mentioned with that bill in Arizona, where Republicans are trying to figure out a way to gain an advantage over Democrats that's against the norms, at least, of the Constitution, the way you will decide on presidents through the Electoral College. It could be Democrats against Democrats. So some centrist Democrats might feel like they're under, let's say, challenged by folks on the left that are much more aggressive about procedures or about, uh, as I said, pressing advantages now that they control the three branches of government. Well, not the three, but at least uh, the House, uh, the Senate, and the presidency. Or it could be Democrats against Republicans uh, packing the courts or getting rid of the filibuster or adding a bunch of states to the union, right? Uh, whether they can do that or not under the Constitution is a separate issue. Maybe they can. The, the bigger issue is about the uh, norms about what's fair game or fair play and what are some tactics you otherwise would have foreclosed. And obviously, we can go back to President Trump and the fact that he might have unleashed the floodgates uh, through a lot of his actions. I'm kind of curious that you um, seem to be expanding the definition of, of canceling to acts that, that seem much more political than, for example, you know, people being upset about something that someone said on YouTube and demanding that that person loses uh, their sponsorship deals or something like that. Or someone, uh, yeah, tweeting something that a lot of people take offense with and then demanding that that person be fired. How do you reconcile those, those things? How are these uh, related phenomena in your mind? I suppose it's, you know, the same roots or the same branch to use an analogy, biological analogy, and to use plant life or a tree or something. And these are just all branches from that same tree. And we might say that that tree is diseased. And uh, to me, 
that's the way to think about this. But we could relax that. It doesn't have to be that broad. We could just start broad and get narrower, right? What are your thoughts? Push back, uh, constrain the debate a little bit more if you'd like. It seems to me that uh, canceling specifically refers to uh, people using uh, social media very um, aggressively or targetly to call what amounts to ultimately to, to, to political or economic boycotts of certain people where you use the reach that social media gives you to uh, for a group of individuals that are unorganized or an organized social movement to call for economic or political sanctions against people for um, different kind of infractions. That, that's how I think that to me is uh, the act of canceling someone. What, what I find um, remarkable is that it's very often, um, very explicitly, there is a demand to get someone fired, right? So it's, it's, it's almost always about economic sanctions against someone. And uh, so I don't necessarily um, want to get into, you know, the reasonings behind those moves, right? Because, um, you know, it might be more understandable um, for, for some actions and less understandable for other actions. But I feel like that's kind of beside the point for now. Because I find the phenomenon as such quite remarkable, because would you not say that these sort of specific targeted actions by groups to economically sanction people for things that a large enough group of people disagrees with, that that's something new? Perhaps it is. But let me just make one last effort to connect it to larger Mm -hmm. phenomenon. And then we can go back to the very narrow social media you said something I don't like, I use asymmetric warfare or disproportional type of uh, sanction against you, right? You said something I don't like, therefore you deserve to be fired, right? Or uh, ridiculed or or, uh, humiliated, right? Mm -hmm. To me, the reason why you might wanna start broader the way I did, which is just this zero sum struggle to defeat, right? Different factions trying to defeat each other or within a faction trying to suppress dissent and trying to create uniformity is that cancel culture is a symptom of the the attempt of some individuals, usually representing larger groups to impose a grand narrative. Uh Uh-huh, okay. And the grand narrative is very exclusive and any deviation from the narrative is a threat and folks that voice deviations or dissent or or things that are heterodox are therefore potential enemies there if you think about it in religious terms heathens right or they're Mm -hmm. um infidels right they're just not towing the 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 line when you think about piety or dogma Mm -hmm. doctrine right And so that to me uh, is why I like to connect it to this bigger picture, right? And these narratives, and there are narratives on the left and the right, are narratives for a reason. They don't conform to a world that's gray, that's uh, complicated, Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, random to a certain extent, that's nonpartisan, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's why I connect it to these grander political struggles, to the culture of liberalism, to the fact that it has manifestations in the ability or in the attempt to manipulate and control political institutions, uh, the political discourse and all that. Well, I think the problem here is that ultimately, I I think I agree with you, right? I think you're extremely clever here in in, in connecting the dots, but I still want to push back because otherwise I think the conversation is not going to be very interesting. So um, don't you, uh, or I 
would still argue that there is a significant technological element to this phenomenon, right? Um, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, everyone's speaking about Twitter mobs, right? Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube have all been um, in the fire for related phenomena, where the idea is, you know, that it's really something about these new technologies that brings out the worst in people, that it's possibly connected to the fact that you can be anonymous online, it's related to the fact that the internet weirdly creates this space where you have a permanent reputation. You alluded to this earlier, right? There's a timestamp. There's a there's a way that things that you've said in the past can be recorded. Uh, presumably, it would have been much, much harder to dig up what someone said in a casual context 15 years ago in a different technological context that would have been much harder, right? So clearly there seems to be some some uh, some measure of the fact that we live in a new technological um, context where uh, actions like that are much easier. Secondly, you know, it's much, much easier to, to organize large groups of people to converge on condemning one specific person through these new means of, of, of one-to-many or many-to-many com- uh, communication. So wouldn't you say that maybe if you do concede that the frequency has increased, that there is some technological dimension to this phenomenon. Absolutely. You left out algorithmic amplification, by the way, which is the fact that social media rewards controversy, buzz, Mm. uh, polemics, trolling, extreme views, uh, lies, right? Now, we've had conversations about, well, are those just negative externalities? What's the best way to deal with them if they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this unique to social media, to digital platforms? Could it be that the benefits of uh, algorithmic amplification outweigh the costs? But that would be one of uh, another thing that makes the technology different. And that would create, I suppose, in a complementary way to anonymity, the permanence of your reputation or your actions online and the ability to organize large groups, add to the mix algorithmic amplification. And maybe that's all you need to explain cancel culture, right? Right. But and it's what you do with those things, I think, that still matters. Yeah. And that might be connected to what I was saying about tribalism, polarization, zero-sum political struggles, illiberality in general. Right? Yeah. One of your strongest points here, I think, is the this noting that everything is political. As you say, there's no complexity is, uh, to some extent. Um, people pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, it, it's downplayed. At the same time, it's very hard not uh, to do something that is in some way considered political in the United States at the moment, right? To the extent that, you know, wearing a mask in public is a political statement for some weird reason, right? In, in 2021. I would argue that you can make the case that technology, by integrating a lot of different, possibly very diverse groups in this one digital space, you know, potentially um, creates conflicts like that. Because a lot of things that were uh, previously maybe a little bit less political because everyone was sort of doing certain things um, are now politicized through the fact that conflicts are created because everyone is um, sort of harboring the same space in some sense. That's a very incisive hypothesis, Nick. I don't know. To me, this goes back to a liberalism, though, Mm -hmm. and that might antecede the technology in that the private-public distinction is one of the canons of liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. Civil society, on the one hand, government on the other, right? And there's a realm that's autonomous, that's separate, that has its own logic. Uh, And as you said, the boundaries are blurring. 
whether the technology is the cause of that or amplifies it or has no effect whatsoever, I'm not sure in a counterfactual world, we could have become tribal and uh, polarized, but use like telegraphs and newspapers and television or just the mail of the courier service, right? To do this. So I'm not sure, but it's a great question to ask. I don't know. In fact, maybe we want to transition to talking about the different possible hypotheses we right. have besides technology, right? Uh, for cancel culture and exploit the political economy logic, some framework from political economy. Yeah, exactly. So, Victor, how can different frameworks from political economy help us to make sense of what's going on? It seems to be that technology is somehow in the mix, but, but what else is going on? Well, I'm going to use some jargon, and I hope that when I do so, you check me and you of make course. sure that I flesh this, this stuff out. Because as a political economist or as a social scientist or just a academic, we tend to use jargon, uh, a shorthand. Uh, we have specific uh, tools of the trade with very uh, precise definitions. But I'm going to think about what political economy does in terms of a fra framework, and it offers four potential explanations. Okay. The first comes from Ronald Coase in a framework of property rights. And you might think of speech as uh, being the assignment of property rights to either a speaker or listener. Does the speaker have the right to say whatever is on her mind? Or is that, does the listener have the right to tell the speaker what should be spoken? Uh -huh. okay. And therefore, the, the listener has the uh, rights of censorship, right? Because they don't want to be offended or hear things that are heretical or, or things they don't like. The second political economy framework we might think about is coordination, which is there are very simple models in game theory. Game theory is the study of strategic interaction where what you do is a function of what others do. Of course. Okay. And the classic example is do you drive on the right-hand side of the road or the left-hand side of the road? You might not have an intrinsic preference about driving on one side or the other. It doesn't matter to you. But what you want to do basically is drive on the side of the road everybody else is driving on so you don't collide with them head, head on uh -huh. and avoid having to go to the hospital or die, right? So it's a coordination game. And it's all about focal points. How is the society coordinating? If it's in England, it's on the left or Japan. If it's uh, the United States or Mexico, it's on the right side of the road. And so therefore you go with what everybody else is doing and that's your best move. Another way to think about uh, cancel culture, free speech and all that is distribution, which is the outcome of a struggle over coordination matters and there are relative winners and losers. Some folks do better under some focal points and some folks do worse because they generate more power or rents from one uh, uh, alternative. Let's go back to driving on the left side of the road versus the right side. Suppose I have a preference because I learn how to drive, in fact, in the US and in Mexico, so I use both of those examples. Um, suppose I have a preference to drive on the right side because it's just more natural to me, it makes more sense, that's how I learned to drive, et cetera, right? Then I might have an incentive to try to push everybody else to drive on the right hand if we're all driving on the left. I might wanna go to England, for example, and start a propaganda campaign about the fact that it's more righteous or better or smarter to drive on the right side, right? And maybe I'll cook up some numbers on fatalities or uh -huh. public safety, I don't know. And I'll try to get my, my way, which will generate more rents, in this case, more utility, more uh, satisfaction, uh, more comfort for me, right? Uh, in that sense, there's a struggle over uh, the way the benefits are distributed, right? 
The last thing I'll say from a political economy perspective is what's called imperfect information or uncertainty, where it's very important to figure out how to trust others or how to know what they're about or whether they're competent or whether they're of a certain type, right? They have certain values or certain predilections. And so you use what's called costly signaling or screening. Costly signaling means that it's incumbent on that other person that you don't know much about to prove to you that they're a reliable type or a trustworthy type or a competent uh -huh. type of person. Screening would be, it's incumbent on me as the person that lacks the information to suss out the right information about them and figure out using some technology, using some protocol, figure out whether I should trust them, whether they're reliable, whether they're competent, right? If you think about someone who offers someone a job, the screening process mm -hmm. is reading through their resume and having an interview and then following up on their credit history, if that's legal. In some countries, in fact, it is, and some it's not. So that's, these are four possible ways of thinking about this. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me, but um, could you explain how, you know, the Coase theorem approach that you were mentioning, how does that map on to the situation that we were describing uh, with um, people uh, getting into conflict about um, what other persons are saying to each other? Well, look, this Coase theorem is all about if property rights are assigned and enforced perfectly to something, then it really doesn't matter who has the original allocation of the property rights. Provided transaction costs are low, and that means the costs of exchange, the costs of dialogue, the costs of coordinating and contracting and enforcing a contract, provided those are low enough, let's just assume they're zero, then it really doesn't matter who has the property right. In this case, the property right of speech. Right. Suppose there's a regime of free speech, and you as a listener, Nick, are offended by what, what I say. If the transaction costs are low, Nick, you might make it an agreement with me not to say things that are going to hurt your feelings. I have the property right of speech, but it happens to hurt you. And you're just going to go to me and say, you know what? Every time you speak in ways that offend me, you use certain terms I don't like. Maybe you use terms that are bigoted or prejudiced, right? And maybe even the speaker's not aware, but the listener is very aware. You could just go to me and tell me and we'll come up with an arrangement where I try to curb what I say, right? Or I could pay you to... Uh, to refrain from saying certain things that I don't want you to say. Payment would be one way. It's not the only way, but that would be of the course. way to very efficiently remunerate me for not saying what I'd like to say. And provided you pay me enough, I'll be better off because I get the money. You'll be better off because you don't hear mm -hmm. what I say. Exactly. Now, if the property right were different, suppose the listener has the property right and the speaker does not. So let's call that censorship or even cancel culture to be provocative. Well, in that case, if transaction costs are low, where it's not a big deal to contract, uh, uh, it's not a big deal to communicate, it's not a big deal to enforce this, um, I could go to you, you're the listener, you have the property right, and I could say, you know, I want to say what's on my mind, Nick, I have things mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, mm -hmm. maybe I just can't control it anymore. So I'm going to pay you a hundred bucks, and we're going to relax this rule, and I'm going to say whatever the heck's on my mind. Yeah. And you're going to be happy if 100 bucks is at your reservation value. That's a fancy word for that's the threshold you need, mm -hmm. right? To, to waive that right, then you're going to waive it and everything's going to be fine. So it really doesn't matter what the property right is. 
The problem, as Coase says, and it's a reason why he wins a Nobel Prize, he says this in The Problem of Social Costs in 1960, is that we don't live in a perfect world with zero transaction costs. So getting the property right correctly is important. It has ramifications because people cannot seamlessly transact and try to make each other better off. Let's say in this example, by a speaker paying off a listener uh -huh. to listen to what he or she has to say, right? Even if he or she doesn't like it. And so therefore, as a society, we have to get this right. And there's an instrumental reason then for free speech to be the coin of the realm. Let me ask you, why do you think that would be the case? Why should we have a free speech regime instead of a censorship regime? If we're thinking about maximizing social welfare or every individual being as well off as they can be, right? On net, aggregating that up. It seems to me that one immediate conclusion from your analysis here is to say, well, if contracting is not possible, is for some reason costly, or becomes more costly over time for some reason, maybe because um, maybe we can uh, enforce social conventions or understandings of what is uh, appropriate and what isn't, and we honor those because we care about each other. So now you could obviously imagine a situation where um, you know, our ideas of what is appropriate diverge for some reason, then we're in a situation where both listeners and speakers in, in abstract terms are now going to be more incentivized to somehow um, uh, fight over the property right of, of either speech or being uh, able to only listen to things that you want to listen to, right? So as soon as a bargaining over those things breaks down, you know, it's, 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 it's going to turn into a struggle over the property right. Is that, is that a fair interpretation of what you're saying? For sure. So we could go into the distributional aspects and the like uh, in a second. If you don't mind, let's punt on that for now. But uh, yeah, that is one of the upshots, correct? That if there are not clear property rights, then we're going to try to negotiate them. Or we might end up with a property right that is in the middle between the extreme of free speech and between the extreme of censorship and let's say cancel culture, right? But Suppose we only have two alternatives, right? Because it's very difficult to come up with some intermediary. Then I would say just using the Coast framework, it actually makes sense to have free speech be the default. That's what I was trying to ask you why I okay. think that's the case, right? Uh, let me take, take another stab at it. I want to see if you agree with the logic so far and would arrive at the outcome, which is free speech. But I want to hear why you might do that. And then I'll tell you why I arrive at that. So let's uh, suppose we're foreclosing coming up with some wishy-washy thing in the middle. We don't want to have no property rights because then it's going to be endless struggle over what the rules of the road are, whether it's free speech or whether it's censorship or somewhere in between. And I'm arguing we're actually better off as a society with free speech from an instrumental perspective. Uh -huh. Would you reach that conclusion? I'm just curious because I've reached it on my own, but I want to know if others would as well. Right. Um, I think I would reach that conclusion, but I would have to pull in a lot of um, exogenous concepts here. Well, look, again, my own intuition using Co the Coase theorem is that we should always settle on free speech. A but the, how, how do you reach that conclusion without pulling in ideas like, well... Um, well, you kind of have to, and this, this is where you yeah. and I are converging, and let me tell you why. Um, I think you default to free speech because the benefits far, far outweigh the costs. With Coase, it's all about the social benefits, right? You do an aggregation of individual welfare, right? And you say, is the sum of folks 
or folks' well-being uh, advantaged by free speech, the net the net uh, consequence uh, being more positive with free speech than the alternative censorship. And I say, yes, society is better off because the bedrock of modernity, of progress, of science, of liberal democracy, of comedy, of happiness is free speech. Because it's, as I was saying at the beginning, part of the liberal values that have created uh, prosperity, uh, uh, an amazing um, ability to have collective decisions at large scale be through majority uh, rule with constraints in terms of checks and balances, uh, civil liberties, um, bills of rights, uh, uh, judiciary and, and the like and individual rights. But by and large, I would say that our entire machinery in the modern world uh, specialization in the economy, innovation, globalization, the flow of goods and services is connected um, uh, to the freedom to think, the freedom to experiment, the freedom to exchange ideas. Uh, technology transfer, which is the number one way in which you sustain economic development and improvements in innovation and spread the uh, prosperity from country to country and even within countries that is contingent on openness, on dissemination of ideas, on trial and error, on learning by doing, on keeping an open mind, on having an open access society with free entry and free exit, on having a robust civil society. And I could go on and on. We've talked about these topics on other podcasts. So that's where I end up with the cost benefit analysis that says if you only have two choices and getting the property right matters, you always should end up with free speech as the default. Okay. Um, but you're assuming that my speech can't in, in some way damage the system as a whole in, in a way that would be um, you know, irreconcilable with all those things that you were just mentioning. If you say it's about freedom of speech, aren't there then also restrictions on your speech that need to be put in place to allow that freedom to exist in the first place? I'm talking about a culture of civil society where there is a public-private distinction, where liberal values reign supreme where you give people the benefit of the doubt and where the speaker has the right and the listener has to bear it. I'm not saying there aren't social costs, by the way, to free speech. There are. I'm just talking about the net benefits, right? And I'm just using a utilitarian calculus here uh, where I'm thinking about uh, the Kosian logic of what kind of property rights you adopt. You adopt the ones that maximize social welfare when transaction costs are not negligible, right? Uh, but that's constrained by the fact that we artificially created a world where we have two options. Uh, where we right. said we can't negotiate on a bilateral basis on what the uh, uh, speech rule or, or property will be, and transaction costs are high, right? Uh, once we relax that, we might end up at a different um, conclusion. I suppose I'm just saying as a matter of logic, there's no way around free speech being a default if our objective is to maximize social welfare. I actually, this is not even an opinion. This is just deductive logic based on the Coase theorem, right? Whatever my own view on free speech is, is totally different from this conclusion, I think, that is inevitable if you use the Coasean framework. I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so I think the, the point that I was trying to make very clumsily is to say that in liberal theory, freedom does not mean anarchy because anarchy can actually be an extremely unfree existence. You know, you need certain rules, certain um, uh, institutions to be in place to enable, you know, positive freedoms uh, that, that are otherwise, you know, not really a matter of fact. 
So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that that's sort of like expanding or, or sort of exploding this little um, thought experiment that you were setting up for us. But that was, that was what I was trying to refer to. I get to. it now. Axiomatically, if free speech leads to anarchy, then it makes sense to have censorship. And then censorship would dominate the social welfare function in my jargon. And therefore you would want to assign property rights to censorship. You're absolutely right. So, if, we, if we're in the situation where the yeah. only options that we have for yeah. either you know, completely free speech or censorship, then you might end up in that situation. If, if free speech leads to anarchy. Right. The only problem though, or maybe it's not a problem is that's a big empirical question, right? Yeah. I'm not sure it would for, I don't see why. I mean, you could also deduce anarchy from censorship. Maybe people will would feel like they have to speak their mind and that it's an unjust system or an unjust culture, and then they would rebel. I'm not sure. But it's a very interesting, provocative question. And then, then I would totally capitulate or yield, and I would say, you're right. If it leads to anarchy, then the, the answer is censorship uh, trumps free speech in the, in the Kosian framework. Okay, so shall we move on to some of the um, the coordination point that you made? That there is um, a value in coordinating on one choice. Yes, Nick, because coordination can lead to coordination failure. A coordination game can lead to coordination failure, right? I like to do in my in my classes a game called the stag hunt. Have you ever heard of this, Nick? The stag yes. hunt. Oh, okay. This is a coordination game where there, there could be a coordination failure. It's a very simple game. Two hunters in, let's say, a um, hunter-gatherer society have to pool their hunting to catch a game, to, to hunt an animal. But there are two options. They can co coordinate together to hunt after a rabbit that yields very limited caloric value, or they can hunt together and go after a male deer called the stag. That's where the game gets its name. When they hunt after the rabbit, they're coordinating and they'll get the rabbit. They'll be able to kill the rabbit, but they'll be pretty hungry. Maybe they'll expend just as much calories. Well, no, they'll get a, they'll get a surplus of calories because otherwise they wouldn't hunt at all. They'll get a surplus of calories, but it's just barely enough to motivate the hunt. Versus a stag, I mean, they're going to get a huge uh, windfall of calories if they could coordinate to hunt the stag. And let's assume that coordinating uh, uh, to hunt both animals is the same in terms of cost. Well, then the question is, what is your prediction about where they're going to coordinate, right? Nick, do you remember what the answer could be? It could be two possible an answers, correct? Yeah. Um, well, it really depends on what the other person is going to do. Absolutely, right? So when is it best for you to hunt after the rabbit? Well, if I'm unsure what the other person is going to do, I'm probably better off just going after the rabbit. Um, if I know the other person is going to go after the rabbit, I definitely want to go after the rabbit because otherwise I'll, I'll run through the woods by myself and go hungry because I myself am not able to, to, to hunt the stag. Um, so I have to be absolutely sure that the other person is definitely going to be in for the hunting party for the stag before I'm going to then agree, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Right. And we could make it probabilistic. It could be, yeah. you know, the probability of uh, uh, whether someone's going to go after stuff. But let's make it deterministic the way you said. And it's exactly what you said is you anticipate what the other person is going to do and condition your own behavior on what that belief is. So if you think others are going to chase after the rabbit, it's best for you to help them chase after that rabbit because it's best to have at least some rabbit meat versus nothing. Because uh -huh. as I said, at least you'll get some surplus. You'll get something above 
uh, the calories expended chasing after it, right? That leads back to the Coase theorem and it could tell us why we might get trapped in a censorship regime. If you anticipate others are going to cancel and censor, even if free speech trumps censorship from a social perspective in terms of maximizing social welfare, with my definition of what that means, making as many people better off as possible or maximizing uh, welfare as much as possible, right? Uh -huh. uh, maybe weighted by the number of people or maybe not, you know, it depends how you do that. But whatever social welfare function you're thinking of, well, then the question is, why do you ever see censorship, especially in a liberal society that needs free speech, right? It's not like we're in some tribal society here where whatever the elders say goes or uh, whether it's all based on tradition or uh, superstition, right? Well, then the answer to the question, why do we get censorship regimes could be that we have a coordination problem. We'd all be better off if we respected free speech as the property right or the rule of the, uh, of the game or the road, the rule of the road. But we anticipate everybody, other, everybody else will be censorious, so we're censorious. So that would be another way to bring in political economy. Does that make sense? Just to think about this issue. I think so. Um, we're going to bring it back to why we're currently in the situation that we are. But let's now expand it to the, the, the third point that you brought up about conflict over uh, the surplus that is arising from potential coordination. Well, are you familiar with this so-called battle of the sexes game? Mm -hmm. Right. This, by the way, is a sexist game, the way it's set up. I did not set it up. It's just set up that way by the mathematicians that set it up in, I believe, 1959, if I'm not mistaken, is the vintage of this game. Um, and the game is sexist by construction by two male uh, uh, game theorists during the 1950s. So I'm just going to tell you what the game is about. Uh, I don't want to get canceled over it. I'm just basically describing a game, not endorsing it. But the idea here is that there are two individuals that have to coordinate their behavior in order to get an outcome, a certain outcome that's collective, but there's a ranking of preferences now and a conflict of interest over that ranking. Uh -huh. Whereas before both farmer, or sorry, not farmers, but both hunters were better off by chasing after the male deer, the stag, because they both got more calories and expended the same energy chasing after it as they did chasing after the rabbit. So therefore there was no conflict of interest over their preferences. Now there's after a rabbit if they both anticipate that that's what each other is going to do. So there could be a coordination failure. But at least there's no conflict of interest in that if they could chase after the stag, they're in full agreement. With the battle of the sexes, one of the players in this game wants to go to the boxing match with his spouse, which is a woman in this game, and she would prefer to go to the opera. This is what makes the game sexist, right? Now, um, in this game, there is a difference in preferences, a conflict of interest, because the uh, husband wants to go to the boxing match with his wife, and the wife wants to go to the opera with her husband, but they would both rather go with each other to some function, some date uh -huh. on date night on a Friday, than go alone to either of these options. So for the husband, the, what, uh, the preference order is go with my wife to the um, boxing uh -huh. match, go with my wife to the opera, go to the boxing match by myself and go to the opera by myself. That's one, two, three, and four respectively. For the wife, the preference ordering is go to the opera with my husband, number one. Number two is go to the boxing match with my husband. Number three is go to the opera by myself. And number four is go to the boxing match with my husband. Uh -huh. That's where the conflict of interest comes. Nick, what are your thoughts on what we should predict about where date night's gonna happen? 
I suppose there are different options, but it ultimately, I suppose it kind of depends on power or uh, who moves first or something like that. Absolutely, right? And so therefore you can spin a story about what your prediction will be. In fact, let's predict what will happen in 1959 when there's a husband and a wife thinking about where to go on a Friday, right? What what do you think? Yeah, they're probably going to end up at the boxing match, I think is what you're alluding to here. I think so. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't know. There could be a culture of deference or a culture of chivalry, but even that is sexist, right? Mm -hmm. Where maybe that is a way of imposing power on someone else, right? By the husband saying, I'll defer to my wife on Friday, right? Maybe she doesn't work. She stays home and takes care of the children or something like that in this 1950 society. Uh, And so that's the outcome you'd predict. And maybe in a different society where it's less sexist or where there's more of a balance of power, you'd predict a different outcome. Maybe it would be the opera or maybe it would be a rotation, go to the boxing match one Friday, the opera the next. The point is exactly what you said. It would all be about power, right? And who has the most power can impose their preferences, right? By dictating what the focal point will be, what the cultural value or what the expectation will be about what one does on a weekend, right? A version of this game would be the following. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the following, because I think that might be a little bit more obvious to people. Victor, you speak Spanish, correct? Yes, very well, I hope. I'm bilingual, (laughs) 100% and bicultural, yes. Okay, so I, I speak German. Let's assume neither of us speaks English. And we are trying to have a conversation, right? We're trying to exchange, we're trying to trade effectively. There are several options here, right? We could both learn English and then be able to have the conversation that we're having right now, but then we both have to invest in doing that. We could also, I could learn Spanish and you don't have to do anything. And then we can have a conversation. That's great. But then I bear all of the costs or you could learn German, um, but then we're in exactly the reverse position. We, We kind of definitely want to be able to exchange here and we're both going to benefit if we end up being able to, uh, to exchange. But who bears the cost of getting us there depends on, on the outcome that we choose. So we end up in this situation where, you know, once we're in the situation where we can exchange, we're both very happy for it. But um, there's some serious shifting in terms of benefits between the, bo- the two of us, depending on what we decide on doing directly or indirectly. I love it, Nick. You're right on. I think this is a great example, right? And what are what would our prediction be in this game? And in the struggle you describe between yourself and me, we're going to try to impose our preference on each other, right? Exactly. By creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. I'm going right? to want to be known that most likely we're going to end up speaking Spanish, right? Exactly. I'm going to use whatever power, leverage, information, knowledge, whatever, to get drive you to learn Spanish, and you're going exactly. to do the same and drive me to learn German, right? Exactly. And I'm, 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 I might throw all kinds of weird things around, right? That like Spanish is an inherently uh, sinful language, and that the world will be better off if uh, everyone spoke German and weird things like that. Absolutely, it depends how bad you want this, but it seems like <laughs> the costs are high. These are very high sunk costs of learning a language, right? Exactly. Grammar, vocabulary, enunciation, metaphor, comedy, humor—all these things, the nuances, right? It's not a small task, right? In fact, I love your example because it could be a good analog to free speech, right? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts there? Could we bring it back to free speech or to cancel culture? Um, I, I see the distributional conflict um, as, as the, the, the common denominator in some way, right? That like we, we might have different social preferences also in some, in some capacity, right? And um, 
you know, I think free speech suggests that it's always about something that one person says and the other person gets upset about. But I think there is a, and, and I think people intuitively understand this, that this is about more than that, right? It's about social practices. It's about what is appropriate and what isn't. It's about what preferences you can impose on others and what others that you can't, right? So I think um, in some way, this, this cancel culture free speech debate is all about what you were alluding to earlier, which is ultimately just conflicts over social preferences. That is true, but let's go back to the German Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Suppose I have some values and you have some values, or I have some ideology and you have some ideology. I want to change the way the conversation's going, right? Mm -hmm. And things are up for grabs a bit. You could speak my language or I could speak yours, right? Well, then I'm going to want to impose a self-fulfilling prophecy about my language, I think, or my norms in this situation, my values, my beliefs, right? And one of the tactics I might use to get my distributional outcome I prefer, which is, let's say, the analog of to Spanish being a new set of illiberal values or things that are at a left field or at a right field, you know, uh, mm -hmm. some of these new one could call woke ideas on the left or Trumpist ideas on the right, is to declare that this is the new way we talk. This is the new language. These are the new rules and here are the sanctions. Uh -huh. So I believe this framework could have some traction, right? Maybe not much better than the Coase theory, theorem or the, the theory, theory of pure coordination over driving on the left or right side of the road, but maybe it gives us a little bit of traction when we think about the fact that power is important here, and uh -huh. we think about the fact that there is a struggle over how we're gonna coordinate our behavior. And language is one of these very important ways of coordinating in society, right? Not only what language, but the content in any particular language. Right. And so if, I, if I'm on the left and I have new ideas of social justice, or, if I, or I have new ideas about uh, the, what the social hierarchy should be, or if I just want to score brownie points with my friends, or if I want to move up the hierarchy of my uh, tribe, then it might make sense for if I derive rents that way to impose a new system of language or micromanage vocabulary or speech. Same, by the way, this is all social science. We're not being partisan or ideologues here. On the right, uh -huh. Liz Cheney being defrocked, being thrown, well, not thrown out of the house, but they're going to try to primary her in Wyoming, it's an at-large uh, district for the whole state, so there's only one representative in Congress for Wyoming. It's a very large state, but very few people live there. And they got took her off her leadership post in the House, right? Because she dared to use the old speech or the old rules, which is to tell the truth. Trump lost, and he lost badly. Mm -hmm. Well, now there might be incentives for folks that generate rents by imposing lies to get the lies to stick. So I think there's some, again, utility in an instrumental way in a helpful, and is it helping explaining things way to look at this game in particular? What do you think? Yeah, I think it really elucidates on what the processes are, right? Like what, what, what exactly is going on? Why are people doing the things that they're doing? Or, or no, why, why are they choosing the tools that they're choosing? I think the question, what is going on? Um, when when directed at this cancel culture phenomenon goes a little bit deeper. That's what you started with, right? Which is, what's the motivation behind this, right? Okay, I understand it's about, um, I'm trying to impose my new cultural vision, social vision, my new social preferences. And to do that, 
um, I have to impose it in, in, in X, Y, and Z ways, right? In the ways that we've described, that's important. But the question now is, uh, or maybe the upstream question is what changed all of a sudden, right? Like, why is it so important to people to um, create these new norms, right? Like, in, in this, what's the conflict of interest here? It's, it's too simplistic, I would argue, to claim that, that cancel culture is either uh, uh, perpetrated by people who are too eager to, to right the wrongs uh, that are being perpetrated against um, uh, minority groups, or on the right, you know, by people who are trying to reestablish those kinds of power dynamics of old. I think that's all, that's uh, inaccurate to, to frame it that way, right? I think well, it's, it's that might bring us to the most provocative use of political economy, which would be the signaling approach. Do we mm -hmm. want to go there? Go for it. This theory states that there's imperfect information, as I said before. Like you're dealing with people, and you don't know their character, you don't know their competence, you don't know if they're trustworthy. Right? Mm -hmm. And so they have to send a costly signal to you that makes it so that you can discriminate between people who you trust and people who you don't, people who have character versus people who don't, people who are reliable versus not. Right? And so we might think about what's happening here. And again, we're using these frameworks to see if we can explain the world, not because we're endorsing the framework or yeah. the story. Uh, eventually you'd have to use data to adjudicate between these theories, they generate different um, empirical implications, right? And you would want to test them. But with this theory, it could be that we're in a milieu where it's hard to know what the other's intentions are. Let's just use one particular tribe not now, not think about conflict between tribes, okay? Uh -huh. Let's use a tribe, and again, this could be generic, where you don't necessarily know this person. And by tribe, I just mean a group. I'm using tribe because we're thinking that there's tribalism in our society now, right? But you're part of a group. It's a group that's a lot of folks in an anonymized way. You don't know them. You don't know their families. Maybe it's arm's length exchanges with them or arm's length communication. You don't know whether you should trust them. And your group comes under attack or is threatened, then it's very important for you to know who's going to be there through thick or thin, who's going to stand up against that uh, perceived enemy that we have in common, who's, who's reliable, who's trustworthy, who's competent, or who's tough enough, right? In this case, it could be that because we're in this situation, we have to send costly signals to each other that we're not just a, um, let's say, a, a leisurely member of the tribe or a free rider or someone that doesn't take this seriously, that this is a very important part of our identity and we're going to fight for it. We're going to fight against our common enemy. Uh -huh. We might have to send signals that are costly when everyone's trying to do the same. And so it, we get to an outbidding type of strategy. Right where it becomes very difficult to be able to discriminate the noise from the signal and therefore you have to keep upping the ante. And that might involve adopting whole new linguistic systems with new uh, language, with new rules, with new sanctions, with new ostracism, uh, with new weird cryptic slogans and neologisms and extreme sanctioning. Again, Liz Cheney for telling mm. the truth is now a Republican in name only, according to the Trumpists, right? And telling the truth, um, in a sense, 
uh, is a way in which she signaled the opposite. She's not a member of the tribe. And by telling brazen lies and peddling conspiracy theories, you can separate yourself from the so-called rhinos, right? Like right. Chris Cheney. And so therefore there's this outbidding to be absurd and to have the most irreverent and irrational conspiracy theories like QAnon on the right. Mm -hmm. and on the left, it could be a whole new jargon based in the academy that most people just can't use because they haven't been to grad school and they haven't read Derrida or Marx. And so they don't understand what wokeism is about, for example, and all this new language and all these new demands and all these new values and things keep shifting and the goalposts keep shifting and who's in and who's out, who's marginalized and who's not, who has the right to say this and who has the right not to, uh -huh. uh, who's culturally appropriating and who's not and what it means to culturally appropriate. I'm using all the jargon from, from that tradition, right? Which is evolving, right? At a very fast clip. So the signaling model, let's say that the attack was Trump and populism or authoritarianism on the right, could mean that to reveal that you are a trustworthy, competent, card-carrying person of the left, you need to adopt a repertoire of language and behaviors, and uh, it could even be punishments against those that are heretical, those that are not signaling the right way. And on the right, the same thing, right? If you're not spewing hate or QAnon or, or mm -hmm. being illiberal and saying Trump won when obviously he lost badly, then you're just not a team player. You're not part of the tribe. You're not part of the clan or, or the uh, new um, religious group, right? You're being a heretic and you're not trustworthy. Thoughts on this last political economy approach? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it does strike me that this somehow interacts with, with new technologies to some extent. At the same time, I'm I'm still somewhat uh, just confused by why this is such a pervasive um, phenomenon in the United States at the moment, whereas it's it's not quite as common in a lot of other places, right? Which definitely speaks strongly against the technology story that it's all about new technologies that are creating these kinds of uh, political dynamics, because you don't really have the same dynamics in Germany, for example. You have similar dynamics in the UK, although to a much, much, much less intense extent. I know that you you said that you have nothing of the sort in, in Mexico, for example. But yeah, so, so I'm still, I think on the one hand, I find this uh, discussion extremely enlightening. I think a lot of the points that you're making make a lot of different thoughts cohere that I've had previously. At the same time, it still seems to me that I, I'm somewhat confused as to what the impetus for for some of the recent dynamics are. Absolutely, I think the signaling framework gets us closer in that we could say Trump is the threat to the left and we could say that the reaction to Trump is the threat to the right perhaps. Mm. Or it could have been President Obama uh, being a threat to the right before Trump, who knows? I don't know what the impetus is, but that could be the way to, let's say, make sense of the timing, right? But mm -hmm. I think you're right. These four frameworks still fall short, don't they? They're, they're not, they're, they're helpful, but I don't think they're the silver bullet, are they? Well, I think they really help you in trying to make you understand what the dynamics are, but I'm not really sure where the energy is coming from. I think that makes total sense. What are some intuitions you have? If it's not technology, if it's not these theories on their own, then is there a fifth theory we're missing? Let's just remind everyone what the theories are. The first was technology, 
we mentioned different aspects of technology, the fact that things are anonymous, the fact that you have a long lived reputation that's time stamped, uh, a digital footprint, so to speak, that follows you, the fact that people can coordinate together, right? Uh-huh. Easily at lower cost, and then algorithmic amplification of extreme content and conspiracies, lies, whatever, right? Pro- provocative things, trolling. Then we went through four of the political economy approaches. The Coase theorem was the first. That was about how uh, assigning property rights matters for social welfare and what property right you'd want to assign. We agreed that probably in a modern society like our own, that's a capitalist system and it's a liberal democracy, you'd wanna do uh, free speech instead of censorship. Then we talked about how you could have a coordination failure though where both hunters are chasing after the rabbit instead of the stag. That would be like coordinating on censorship. Then we discussed how actually it might not be that there's agreement on what you should do. There could be disagreement and a conflict of interest. We talked about the very sexist game, the battle of the sexes, where the husband wants to go to the boxing match with his wife and the wife wants to go to the opera with her husband, right? They'd prefer to do that than go uh, to the other event or to go to somewhere alone. Then we talked about how power is what determines what you'll get. We talked about German, uh, me speaking German versus you speaking Spanish. Uh We have a conflict of interest and we're gonna try to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want you to speak Spanish, you want me to speak German. We talked about the signaling model, maybe trying to tell us about the timing of some of what's happening by saying within each tribe, you really have to show that you are full on tribal and you're as extreme as it gets because this is about an existential threat to your group from an outsider, an outside threat. We talked about Trump, and then we talked about whatever it is that the right feels, maybe a cultural threat or something, that maybe that's what they're feeling, right? From a changing demographics in the US. And then we said, none of this is adequate on its own, right? So let me ask you, do you have an alternative theory? Uh, Unfortunately not, I mean, I suppose the easy way out is to just say that this is some sort of interaction of all these effects. Um, I think the US might have also always been an extremely unique political context, uniquely diverse. The question is, you know, in the way that these um, distributional conflicts arise that we described earlier, diversity is potentially um, a problem here, right? In the sense that the more diverse a society is, the more you are in potential um, danger of having to fight over distributions. Well, if there aren't cross-cutting cleavages, correct. Yes, exactly. Right. If, so the if, core... if politics, economics, culture, society, and let's just use the word race, whatever that means, are all correlated, mm-hmm. then perhaps you will end up in that situation, right? But I think that would be an assumption because there are diverse societies where you don't necessarily see this going on. I would say Mexico is a very diverse society. Let me just tell you, I bet Germany is too in some ways that we're not aware of, right? Uh, I I think uh, that's a a hypothesis, but it's a a little bit of a naive one. And I'm not here to insult you or insult the (laughs) hypothesis. No, No, what what I'm trying to say is that the places that are very diverse in that sense have the potential of creating conflict along those lines. Because once alternative, or periodically maybe, alternative ways to bargain over distributions break down. In the uh, cost theorem, transaction costs might increase or decrease. And or um, given systems that allow us to coordinate on, on one option might uh, might not be permanent, right? There might be, you know, like increase in power of one group or 
potentially one some institutional settlement breaks down or corrodes over time. And what we're experiencing right now is a transition time to a new equilibrium. What, what, what's required right now is the creation of new social institutions that allow us to coordinate on a new agreement that then results in more, um, more stable social relations. The allure is to always think that um, the apocalypse is right around the corner and that everything is different. And nothing is ever going to go back to normal or, or back to, to calmer times, right? I think it's, um, it's much easier to think that, whereas I think it's probably much more accurate to argue that, you know, th there's dynamic change, uh, which might result in very turbulent times for a while, but that does not necessarily mean that that's how it's going to continue, right? It's completely possible that you're going to converge on a new institutional settlement that allows more and more stable relations. Absolutely. And one thing that political economy teaches us is that you don't necessarily converge on the optimal yes. uh, equilibrium, right? Or the optimal focal point, if you want to use that language, right? Even if free speech makes more sense because it makes many more people better off, we're not spending all our time censoring each other for one. I mean, that's a cost you avoid. Forget about the benefits, right? I mean, it's very costly to censor people. You've got to constantly monitor them. You've got to parse their words for any indiscretion. And then if it's cancel culture, if we're going to agree that it's a disproportional punishment, then you've got to be mean. And that's mm. hard being mean, right? It's not easy to try to fire a fellow human being because they said something that they didn't even mean to say what you've heard them say. They meant to say another thing, right? I think you're absolutely right about the dynamics not necessarily being efficient or, or just the status quo way we're used to. And you could end up trapped, right? Uh, one of the reasons I'm worried about cancel culture, whatever it is, if we agree my very with my capacious definition or the more narrow one, is that you can get trapped. Uh, and once you get trapped, it's really hard to get out because everyone's playing a strategy where they expect cancel culture to be sustained. And if we believe the signaling model, the way you uh, keep your credential or you keep your good standing in your group is to do outrageous things because you've got to show other people that you are one of them. And one of the ways to do that is to lash out against others or to punish them, right? So I do think the, the dynamics of the, of the system might be more like an evolutionary situation. Yeah. What if it's just technology? What if what has unhinged some of the social institutions that were allowing people to, to get along previously have been, you know, the, the impetus has been technology, right? I think the strongest case that I could make for that is that technology integrates and flattens space at the end of the day, right? That um, digital technology has created one digital space for all intents and purposes that everyone has to sort of observe at the same time and has significantly shrunken space in which that, that is truly private, right? Where, where I can sort of, or maybe, maybe not private in the sense of that I'm by myself, but it's, it's hard for me to have a conversation that doesn't involve potentially at least a huge amount of people. Even the things that I say to just one person, you know, that person can take and put into the digital space and then everyone observes it, which obviously sort of necessitates that we agree on much more things because otherwise there's going to be conflict. Does that make sense? I love that train of thought because it adds value in ways that other theories don't. That makes a lot of sense to me, whether it's true or not is a separate issue. But another thing that is a little bit more prosaic is 
when you can hear 341 million people speak, let's say that's the population of the US after the census just came out. And obviously not everyone's on social media, not everyone is an influencer, not everyone has the same voice, but suppose that's the case. Well, you're gonna hear things you otherwise didn't hear because yes. there's a distribution of you know, people or, or people are distributed on a bell curve, let's say, when it comes to how intense their preferences are or how hateful they could be or how provocative. And you're gonna get maybe the, the tails of that distribution making a lot of noise. And you might not even be able to know whether that extreme view is representative of most other people, right? It, may, it might right. be hard to know, right? What slice of the distribution that's coming from and how, to, and how to discount it, right? So just the fact that everyone in the room is speaking at the same time and you're hearing voices you otherwise wouldn't have heard, even if they're not representative voices, you're hearing them for the first time and they're having an influence on you. Yeah, I think so too, right? I think a lot of conflicts that are arising today would have, for better or worse, you know, not have arisen 50 years ago just because those two people would have never had the chance to talk to each other. And, you know, to some extent, you could say there's surprisingly little conflict because if you had told me we're going to put 340 million people, we're going to give them the technology right in their hands 24 hours a day, seven days a week to be able to in some way communicate with each other and literally say whatever they want, pretty much. Who knows what I would have predicted, what that implies in terms of social conflict. And the level of people, I mean, obviously everyone disagrees about everything, right? But the level of conflict is, I don't want to say low, but I could imagine it being much higher if we really think about what the, what the context is, the technological context is. I think you're absolutely right. Now, it could, though, be that on the extensive margin, the conflict is low. What I mean by that is, let's say only 2 million people are fighting on Facebook and Twitter, but the on the intensive margin, mm -hmm. a few bad actors are spoiling everything by attempting to overthrow the bedrock of liberal democracy, whether it be cultural values or whether it be political institutions and norms. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're right. It is a kind of a surprise that people get along so well, even though they can hear each other say outrageous things, or some of them, not everyone, you know, very few people out of a population of 341 million will say outrageous things, but those outrageous things will be very outrageous and unheard before, right? But it's still the case, I believe, that if we use my broader definition of cancel culture, there are existential threats to the system. Right. Like, the core of the Republican Party in the House, at least, not being able to say the objective truth and endangering democracy by lying about the election. Or on the left, attempts to silence and ostracize people that in a good faith manner are trying to have a debate about stuff. What's the best way to help people who are disenfranchised or poor? Right or uh, ethnic minorities that have been um, discriminated against, right? Let's have a conversation about the means. It could be education. It could be, could even be charter schools. It could be scholarships. It could be that people should move to Iowa. I, I don't know. These could be uh, honest debates using, as I say uh, often, and I sound like a broken record, facts, logic, and evidence, right? What, what, what's a cost-benefit scenario for how to make our society better, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these could be old-school uh, private market solutions, maybe they're, or private-public partnerships, right? They're not necessarily uh, neo-Marxist approaches where people are put into categories 
And it's all about a caste system or, or reversing a caste system, right? Because we do have cross-cut and cleavages in this society, right? So maybe that's not the best approach. Maybe it's a, a more traditional liberal approach. I don't know what the answer is, by the way. I'm just spitballing. But whatever the case might be, if that's what cancel culture is about, then we're shrinking the space of debate, of uh, reasonable disagreement, mm -hmm. adjudicating conflict, both within each group and between the groups, right? And that's why I think it is valuable to think of cancel culture as a broader phenomenon about threats of a liberalism coming from all different directions with speech being one of the manifestations of it, culturally, not so much politically in terms of the Supreme Court or whether there's a First Amendment. I think the danger is exactly what you're saying, right? That the, the assertion is effectively that there's no compromise possible and that you have to splinter society into perfectly homogeneous communities that are then able to, to coexist peacefully and that, that, that compromise across different kinds of cleavages is somehow impossible, which um, I, I would argue undesirable. So I guess we're both going to uh, learn to speak a little bit of each other's language in that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I'll speak a little bit of ger German poorly. You'll speak a little bit of Spanish poorly, and then uh, we will misunderstand each other more than we understand each other. Right? Exactly. Maybe that is why uh, cancel culture is on the rise. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good solution either. I guess. Yeah, we, sh we should. All groups should just give up whatever they want and just end up with some neutral thing nobody wants, right? And we'll just all agree to coordinate on that, right? Uh, some wishy-washy middle ground uh, that's not very interesting or, or helpful, perhaps, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't sound good, yeah, but I've brought this up in conversations before. I think maybe what is needed is an expanded sphere of private life. Something, I mean, you can call it civil society, you can call it sort of spheres of life that are depoliticized. Um, I, I don't really care what you call it, right? But there, there need to be areas of life that are depoliticized where you can be a private person that is not publicly evaluated. Well, that would be another reason I would say if you follow the Kosian logic, free speech should be the default. Even though it creates negative externalities on others, even though some people are harmed, they don't like it, they don't want to hear it, the benefits outweigh the cost. Because one of the things that goes along with free speech is a private public distinction and depoliticizing speech. Ironically, right? Not all speech is political, right? If free speech is the civil default or the cultural default, I would say. Uh, and therefore, there's no norm of going after people for what they say, no holds barred, like doxing them and going after them at their place of work or harassing them or protesting mm. uh, at the uh, mayor's mansion here in Seattle, right, during the uh, Seattle protests. I would just say I, you could kind of go back to the Coast Theorem, but to go to the technology question, maybe it's good that Facebook and some other social media companies are transitioning towards encrypted chat then. Yeah, I, I was personally never the biggest um, social media user, but... Um... It seems to me that some of these issues are, as you say, technologically at least solving themselves in the sense that I don't know many people who still, you know, use Facebook in the same way that they did pre-2016. I'm, I'm not sure about Twitter, but um, it seems to me that people have sort of changed the way that they interact with that kind of technology as well. The few times that I do log into YouTube, it seems to me that the algorithm has gotten considerably worse. A lot of the, the, the dangers that are being described in terms of YouTube perfectly being able to, to algorithmically tell who you are and what you like 
every time uh, I'm in my YouTube account, it seems to me that these algorithms aren't very good because I'm immediately bored and 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 log out. So it, it I don't know. It seems to me like technologically, I'm I'm relatively optimistic on those fronts. Um, it seems to me politically uh, that there's the biggest reason for pessimism here, because as you described, right, um, the political actors, it seems, are are very much in thrall of these kinds of ideas and are, it seems, in the way that you're describing in some spiral that does not seem to be broken at the moment, right? It, it seems to be uh, very much still ongoing. I think the next step is to for folks to, and maybe that'll be you and I, Nick, test these different frameworks. Right. Let's do it. I think there's a lot of hot air. There's a lot of uh, noise, but there's not much signal, right? I mean, like, what is true about mm -hmm. this phenomenon, right? How new is it and unprecedented? Is it happening on some technologies and not others? Is it best understood as a technological reaction? Or is it best viewed through those political economy paradigms or some right. other non-political economy paradigm, maybe a more of an evolutionary uh, dynamic or just social psychology or individual psychology, right? Mm. Um, I would really like to see some very strong research on this stuff, uh, using the frequency and severity, velocity, and different uh, manifestations of what we might call cancel culture, uh, um, uh, using, exploiting variation on that and, and testing different hypotheses, right? You and I are just spitballing, but it would be nice to get some firm facts on this stuff. Absolutely agree, yeah. So let's go write that paper. Victor Minaldo, thank you so much. Thanks, Nick, this was fun, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.